Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, Psalm 85, verses 1 and 2, and 8 through 13, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 18, and Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I propose that we rewrite the Santa Claus story. We're all aware that Santa Claus knows who is naughty and nice and only brings gifts to the boys and girls on the nice list. The naughty kids get lumps of coal, so be good for goodness sake. But what if we made Santa more in line with the Bible? Santa shows up to the homes of the naughty children and burns them down. Well, on second thought, let's just leave the Santa Claus story alone. Our reading today from 2 Peter chapter 3 is a well-reasoned argument for ethical behavior in light of eschatology. Last Sunday's sermon started Advent by looking back to the longing of the faithful during the Old Testament period, pleading for God to show up. Now, in the second week of Advent, we are looking ahead to our Lord's second coming. Peter uses the events of the future as an argument for holy living today, rather than the anything-goes attitude that some in the church had at that time. Let's take a closer look to see how Peter gets us there. Peter's second letter was written to refute those in the church who lived sinful lives and misinterpreted scripture in order to defend their behavior. They believed that the grace of Christ gave them license to sin all they wanted, because once they had put their faith in Jesus, they had their get-out-of-jail-free card. This thinking is what Martin Luther later termed antinomianism from the Greek words meaning against the law. The fact that this way of thinking was an issue for the Apostle Peter and during the Reformation shows just how easily the human heart wants to rationalize evil. More recently, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, If you preach grace well, you will at times sound antinomian. Among other ways, we can see how antinomianism could arise out of a poor understanding of eschatology, or last things. If the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up, then rationally, why take care of the planet? It will eventually be destroyed anyway, right? In case you missed it, verse 10 says, the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. That would seem to indicate that all deeds, both good and bad, have no eternal impact. They will be destroyed. Isn't that what it says? Isn't Peter making an argument in favor of antinomianism here at the end of his letter? I'll explain the flaw in his thinking in just a minute. But first, let's take a step back to look at Peter's argument from the very beginning. We find Peter's first main point in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You can just imagine that Peter had heard some say 
that either Jesus won't return to bring justice for a long, long time, or his delay indicates that he won't come back at all. Peter is explaining that on the contrary, what appears as slowness is actually patience. Jesus is giving a sinful mankind every opportunity to change our ways because he doesn't want us to face eternal judgment. If we were to think of this like our Santa Claus revision, it would be like Santa skipping the houses of the naughty children in the hopes that they will change their ways and he can come back later to bring them gifts when they are good. Peter returns to this point in verse 15, writing, And count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. How is the delay salvation? Well, as we are about to see, the Lord is bringing judgment with him when he comes. So the more time we have until Christ's return, the more opportunities for people to come to faith and be saved. Peter's next point is that is his main one. Because heaven and earth will pass away, we should live godly lives. Verse 14 says, We should be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace. So why does the destruction of everything mean we should live holy lives? In short, it means there is a deadline coming. On the day of the Lord, all sin will be judged and destroyed. There is not an endless amount of time, so we should put our energy into living according to the words of Jesus in order to be found ready when he comes. But if everything and everyone will be destroyed, as it sounds, what difference does it make how we live in the meantime? This is more easily understood if we interpret the Greek in verse 10 properly. There's a great deal of confusion about the last word in the Greek, which is hirathesitai, which means to be found. Our RSV translation replaces that word altogether with the phrase, will be burned up. Clearly, the translators took some liberties because they didn't know what to do with the Greek. BibleHub, or sorry, uh, yeah, BibleHub.com online interlinear simply adds the word not before the last word to make it say, the earth and the works that are upon it will not be found. That would work if we assume that the destruction described in verses 10 and 12 will be a total destruction of the entire universe. But it is not faithful to the earliest manuscripts that say the earth and the works that are upon it will be found, or as some scholars interpret it, will be discovered. The ESV translation gets it right, saying will be exposed. In other words, the fire of destruction is a fire of testing that burns up the chaff. What survives is the new heavens and new earth, which are no longer tainted by sin. This understanding is not only faithful to the oldest Greek manuscripts, but also makes sense in that Peter's entire point is of the coming judgment of sin. The destruction of the heavens and earth is part of that judgment, in that all that is evil will be destroyed, but what is good will remain or be made new. 
So we should be sure that our behavior now is in line with our faith. The idea of being revealed applies to how we live our lives. The most literal understanding of verse 14 is that all that we have done will be revealed. Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, that is, the judgment that reveals, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Any spot or blemish is in how we live our lives will be revealed in the judgment. If we believe this biblical truth, then we have every reason to live holy lives. What is done in secret will one day be revealed. On the other hand, this level of destruction sounds terrifying, like the very elements themselves will be burned up in some great conflagration, like when the sun is expected to blow up and destroy the earth. But I hope the judgment won't take 10 billion years from now. Talk about forbearance. On the other hand, this judgment will make everything new. Isn't that what we desire most? At the very core level of desire, don't we want everything made right? It's so wonderful that we can hardly even think about it. The full redemption of creation is utterly foreign to our existence, so it's hard for us to even comprehend. And yet we know that is what the world needs. This is part of the promise of Advent. Christ will return to make all things new. As we discussed last week, Advent looks back to our Lord's arrival as Emmanuel, God with us. But it also looks forward to his return as a glorious judge and king. And so, just like the faithful and ancient Israel who were awaiting their Messiah, we are waiting too. The fact that the end of Peter's second letter applies to Advent demonstrates the universality of this church season. As Christ followers, living in the time in between, we are to be waiting and ready at all times for his return. Our longing for the Messiah and the redemption he alone can bring is no different than it was two millennia ago. The sin in the world around us and the sin in our own hearts is the same as in the days before Jesus was born, as well as in Peter's own day. So his admonition stands just as true now as the day he wrote it. Unlike in the Old Testament, we have the benefit of having the Holy Spirit in our hearts guiding us. Like Peter, we also have the benefit of having seen Jesus before, as recorded in the four Gospels. We are in a much different place today as we celebrate Advent than was the case before his first arrival. People around the world are celebrating Advent with us. The world may be a dark place, but the light also shines and cannot be snuffed out. Even though Peter wrote his letter to specific people at a specific time, we are the secondary audience. We are to await our Lord's return by living holy lives. We don't do this because we are under the law or want to earn our salvation. We live holy lives in part because the more good we do, 
the less will be destroyed in the fire of judgment. The works that are upon the world will be destroyed. That is, the works of the world. But the works that are of heaven will pass through the testing and live on. Good deeds done in our lifetime will remain in the new heavens and new earth. That's quite amazing to think about. Telling the truth, showing compassion, worshiping God, and so many other good works will carry on forever. This gives a whole new import to holy living. I don't pretend for a moment to fully understand it yet, but I believe it. We can accept things we don't understand. How does a deed outlive the moment in which it happened? Of course, it lives on in the memory of the one who did the deed, as well as anyone who benefited from it. That could spark a positive response, leading to more loving thoughts and deeds. Just like there is apostolic succession of one pastor being ordained by another, and another before him, etc., there can be a succession of good deeds throughout time. Children who are loved are able to love their own children one day. But if we get a little mystical again, we can picture it like a giant heavenly Christmas tree. Every good deed ever done is a sparkling ornament on that tree. As more good deeds are done, the tree becomes more and more beautiful. In eternity, we will all get to see the tree and see its full beauty. Even at times of great darkness in history, ornaments are still being added. Your ornaments are there now, just as are mine. Though when we get to see it, we will be utterly free of pride, so we won't be comparing ornaments. I don't think this image I just invented is totally off base, if for no other reason that we know that God sees and remembers every good deed. So yes, they will live on forever. So let us reinvigorate our efforts to live holy lives. Let us do good until the day Christ returns, not out of compulsion or to win his favor, but as a way to do something that will last forever. Our good works will not be forgotten. They matter, even if we can't see it. Let us be zealous for Christ. All Peter's readers, both ancient and modern, are being encouraged to live holy lives. Whereas last week's sermon leaned more heavily on the Advent theme of waiting for God to show up by looking back, today's theme is stronger on the element of preparing our hearts for his coming, particularly his second coming. Holy living born out of faith is the only way to be ready. So many were not ready the first time. Let us not make the same mistake. We need to recommit ourselves to Christ and the way of love and obedience that he both taught and demonstrated. Without hearts submissive to God, we cannot see him even now. Just as we talked a few weeks ago about Pilate being unable to hear the truth that Jesus spoke, so anyone whose heart is against Jesus cannot see the signs of his presence. 
Miracles get chalked up to serendipity. Wise decisions are attributed to the individual instead of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Psychological categories are preferred to theological ones. Love is mere biology, and the Bible is seen as nothing more than man's efforts to make sense of his world. God is active in our world right now through the Holy Spirit. Why don't we see it? Because our hearts aren't ready to. Living obedient lives that are continually recommitted to Jesus is the only way to see God now and be ready for his coming in glory. As we prepare to receive communion today, we are doing just that, recommitting ourselves to Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have already done this. But we need the act of recommitment. Sin is always lurking just around the corner, waiting for us to become vulnerable. Our solution isn't more willpower, but hearts transformed by Christ's love. With our hearts submitted to him, we desire what he desires. But we even need reminding of our true desires. Advent reminds us that our hearts are being redeemed and we need to continually commit to the process of being made new as we await the coming of our Lord. Peter reminds us that when Christ return, he is bringing judgment. We need to live such a way that our actions will withstand the testing fire. The Holy Spirit transforming our desires makes such a life possible. We couldn't live such a life without God becoming man. He showed us the way, but more importantly, his sacrificial love was the only thing that could transform our desires. So as we look ahead to the advent of our Lord's return, let us avoid the trap of willpower for holy living and instead open our hearts to the baby who draws us with his love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.